Hello everyone. As always, I'm Keith and this is my dad, Kerwin. So we created a segment in our podcast called Star Wars in Our Community to spotlight fans in our neighborhood. You never know where you're going to meet them. At school, on the job, at the mall, or in the supermarket. <laughs> so this episode, you'll hear the story of John LaValle, born in Yuma, Arizona. At the age of 14, he watched Star Wars and had a life-changing experience. He joined the Navy when he was 18 and built his first space cruiser model there. After the Navy, he moved to Hollywood, where he worked on several films and TV series, including Apollo 13, Starship Troopers, The Fifth Element, Star Trek The Next Generation, and Star Trek Voyager. Mr. LaValle, welcome to Father's Like Galaxy. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you so much, John, for being here. This is wonderful. We can't wait to speak with you. And uh, it's a true story. You know, when we're doing these uh, community spotlights, we don't know where we're going to meet fans. So if you can uh, just share with us how you actually, how our family met your family. Well, um, we were in the uh, Lidl, L-I-D-L, grocery store. And I just happened to have one of about a dozen different Star Wars t-shirts on. And this is very kind, lovely lady says, oh, oh, are you a fan? And we started talking a little bit, said, oh yeah. And turns out um, she was interested in, I, I told, I mentioned that I used to work in visual effects and that kind of perked up the radar. And uh, we started talking a little bit more. And then they started, she told me about uh, your guys' uh, podcast and how this is the father-son um, and wife activity. And uh, everything just sounded so cool. Um, once we uh, talked about the idea of uh, me actually talking to you guys on, on your uh, podcast, I'm thinking, wow, this is a great first for me. This is awesome. This is totally cool. And it's about Star Wars, so it's awesome. <laughs> so, but uh, yeah, I've, I've come a long way from, uh, from Hollywood. Um, sometimes people ask me, you know, what are you doing here? And I'm so, well, this is a family matter, brought me here. My, uh, uh, my daughter has uh, three children and they're, they're wonderful, but they're also a handful. And my, uh, my wife and I decided we'd, uh, we, we should be here and, and give her a hand. And uh, that's yeah. how we got to meet in a grocery store in the Norristown area. All right. Well, we can't wait to, to share your story with everyone else. <laughs> So, like I mentioned earlier, you saw Star Wars for the first time when you were 14. What excited you about the film? Oh, my God. It, it's, it's one of those things I remember all the details of. Uh, this was in uh, Scottsdale, Arizona, in the summer of 1977. I was 14 years old, and I had heard the ad for Star Wars on the radio, but didn't really pay much attention. So when my folks say, uh, let's go see Star Wars, I'm like, well, okay, yeah, sure, whatever. Um, we uh, waited in line for about three and a half hours. And the theater we saw it out was a, is a uh, no longer exists. It uh, was called the Seneca Pre, and it was a state-of-the-art theater. Um, 70 millimeter projection, Dolby stereo sound. It had a wide screen, a wide curved screen. And... Um, I just happened to be the first person to walk through the line or walk into the theater when they let us in. And I found the geometric center of the front row to sit in. And my vision was taken up entirely by the screen. And oh, wow, 
when that star destroyer comes over the screen and just keeps coming and coming and the front end of it disappears in the distance and it's still coming. <laughs> um, it's, and then the only time I had any difficulty was in the scene with uh, Greedo and Han in the cantina and I'm having to read Greedo's lines. It's like watching a tennis match, <laughs> trying, trying to read. But when the picture was done, um, I was so excited that I could feel the muscles in my legs were jumping. It was, it was that much um, adrenaline surging through a 14 year old kid. Um, like I said, I have never recovered and I, I don't think I ever want to. Um, so I, I went through life in the Navy. I had uh, you know three and a half years on a submarine. Uh, I became very much interested in science, science fiction, history. I mean, up until up until that time in the theater, uh, if it wasn't uh, air, an airplane, Star Trek, or a dinosaur, I wasn't interested. Um, but my horizons broadened when I discovered the broader spectrum of science fiction and then science and then history and all of these aspects of uh, the human imagination and human knowledge, um, totally hooked. Uh, tell us a little bit about your experience in the Navy and the moment that led you to building your first Starship model. Hmm. Um, well, the submarine, even on the outside, some of them can look pretty large, but uh, once you get inside, it's cramped. Uh, it's almost as if space for the crew is considered as an afterthought. Yeah, the equipment uh, and uh, the weaponry and all that takes priority. But we still had a little bit of space. And we also, when the submarine is in port, when we're in home port, we have barracks, which, uh, which we can you know, move into. They're like an apartment building. You get three or four sailors to a, a big cinder block room with four bunk beds and three lockers and uh, so on. Well, I was in that situation. I was uh, working on a model and I had, it was a model of a German ship called the Graf Spee. Yeah. Excuse me. Um, and I had two of those models because I was building one for a friend and one for myself. And so I had the hulls, had the hull of each in my hand and I just happened to clap them together like, like horseshoes or coconuts or something. And I happened to notice that when they came together, they made a shape. Yeah that still had the nautical architecture, but I thought, oh my God, that looks like, like a spaceship. And so I taped them together and modified a few things and realized that I was making a sci-fi space cruiser out of literally out of model kit parts from something that was very far removed from my sci-fi ship. And I ended up uh, building um, a larger version of the same thing using hulls of the battleship Arizona and uh, here's, this is an interesting uh, story that kind of ties in uh, science fiction and uh, things of this nature. This, this second ship that I built, I called it the Battleship Temerity. And it had a kind of a manta ray-ish appearance, but it was made from the hulls of the battleships Arizona and the aircraft carrier Midway. I modified the guns, modified the turrets, made them all look you know, less nautical and more technical sci-fi with radars and telescopes and things. And I had big, huge, uh, I call them photon drive engines. They're an antimatter engine with a big antimatter rocket at the end. 
six of them on the, on the stern of this big battleship. Well, I entered it in a science fiction um, uh, convention model contest at Old Dominion University. And the, uh, the guy who judged the contest didn't like the way I built it. He's, a, he's an old school model builder. He said, you know, real men don't use decals was his approach. And I'm like, well, okay, real. I later learned real men don't have to meet production deadlines. But I, I accepted his challenge in my profession and learned how to make everything from scratch. So I can, but that doesn't mean I always want to. You know, if I wanted to build a model of the Starship Enterprise, there's some really nice kits out there. So one that's like three feet long. Why would I want to build it from scratch when, the, when this other company has done most of the work for me? <laughs> so anyway, um, I had this model battleship in, in this contest and the, guy, the judge didn't like it, but everybody else did. And I found out about it when, when they were announcing the, the awards for all the different art exhibits and art competitions and, and, and my battleship wasn't mentioned, I could hear people in the audience murmuring about it. And I thought, well, okay, it's just life. Well, I went, as I uh, walked away, I went past the room where the models were on display and I happened to see James Doohan, who's uh, the actor who played Scotty, we all know. He went, in, he went inside and he ignored every other model in that room, but made a beeline for the temerity. And he spent about 10 minutes just looking it over from every angle. And he respectfully obeyed the sign that says, please do not touch. But he looked at, I mean, he went to some trouble to get behind the table to, to see the, the stern of the ship. And after about 10 minutes, and I, I kept my eye on him, but kept a, a very discreet distance. And finally he walked away, went straight back out the door. And I thought to myself, yeah, I know who really won this contest. And being that I was had just turned 21, I decided I'm going to go to the bar and just have myself a little adult beverage just to celebrate. Well, I went and did that. Okay, fast forward nine years. I'm working in Hollywood. I'm working at a company called Wonderworks. And we're working on a, a project for NASA. We're, we're working on a, uh, an airline commercial, big 747. And my hands are just covered with Bondo. I'm covered with dust. And in comes, of all people, Michelle Nichols. And apparently she was a friend of the guy who owned the shop. And we were introduced, but I was in no condition to, to meet anybody. I, I had to apologize for that. But uh, about two weeks later, that company sent me to Jet Propulsion Laboratory as their representative for a, uh, a dinner that was being held in Michelle Nichols, Nichols' honor because of all the public relations work she had done for the, uh, for the space program you know, opening up the astronaut corps to a, a much a broader, diverse range. And uh, JPL was uh, hosting that dinner. Well, I got there unfashionably early and because uh, I, I knew the place. I had a couple of friends who worked in the uh, deep space tracking network and things like that. So I knew the campus at, at JPL. But who else comes in early but Michelle herself? And so we sat down at uh, one of the banquet tables and for about 25 minutes just had a private chat. And I told her this story about this battleship that I had built nine years before. And she looked at me and she goes, that was you. She ended up telling me the rest of the story. And the rest of the story was that while I had gone to the left to go down to the bar, James Duham had turned around to the right and gone to the green room and picked up her and uh, George Takai 
and brought them into the uh, model room and showed them this model. And nine years after the fact, with all the sci-fi conventions that she's been through, she remembered the temerity, she remembered the ship's name, she remembered details about it, and she finally uh, got to meet the guy who built it. And so uh, I was just totally floored. But and it, it's a shame, you know, human life is so short and she passed away recently. But I always thought her of her as one of the most gracious and wonderful people in Hollywood. And I still think so. John, you said you created your models from scratch. So you didn't have any type of blueprint. Um, there wasn't a how-to book on putting the models together. So how did you know how to do that? And what type of tools did you use to put together these models? Oh, um, it depends. If I was working on a movie like The Fifth Element, uh, the blueprints are already done up for us and we can work straight from blueprints as if mm -hmm. we were building an architectural model. But if it's one of my own designs, I will often just do it in here. Um, you know, I can't compare myself to Mozart, but Mozart used to write his symphonies in his head before he put pen to paper. And I would often do the same thing with a model, a science fiction model. I have um, a range of space cruisers from near future stuff to dis far distant future stuff. I've got a, a submarine aircraft carrier still inside my head. Um, now I'll usually do a few drawings like a plan and an elevation to give me uh, a start, but very often when it's done, it'll have departed from those original drawings to begin with. So I, I can work from uh, a thumbnail sketch on a cocktail napkin, uh, and I have, um, to detailed blueprints and, uh, and CAD renderings, whichever the source. And what supplies did you use? Where did you get your supplies? Oh, um, uh, it had to be tricky on a submarine because you can't just bring, you know, a gallon of lacquer thinner onto the boat. It's a, it's a, the atmosphere of a submarine is critically important, and so you can't just bring anything in. Um, but I would bring very small quantities of model glue, um, small bottles of paint, and uh, under under conditions where I didn't let the stuff get spilled or or, uh, or or otherwise introduced into the atmosphere. I was able to do that. So, so I was able to make some progress on some of these models while we're underway, you know, in my copious free time, <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, which was not very little, but yeah. Um, you have a personal collection of models. Uh, can we take a look at what you have? You could show us and oh, describe for people who are listening to us, you know, what the models are. Let's start with, since we're at, since the, this is the Star Wars program. Yes. Let's start with some Star Wars stuff. Uh, that is a, uh, um, I call that a TIE gunship. That's one of my own designs, but um, it's still, you know, working within the, you know, Sinar fleet systems story of uh, Star Wars items. Mm -hmm. And um, we'll go what over was here. Supplies you, for this ship, go back to the ship, John. What did you exactly use? What supplies and tools did you use to, to build this? Okay, let me let me turn it around. You, if you recognize those wings, those are the wings of a tie interceptor, and there's a, yes. a little model kit made by uh, Ravel uh, of a snap model together okay. tie interceptor. The middle is a uh, body and fuselage from a. Um, uh, it's called a clawcraft. It's it's from the it's it's not film canon, but it's uh, some of the comic books. Other things came out. Um, and somebody had built a model based on one of the uh, concepts from the comics. And then I added these areas here and then added the interceptor wings to produce the 
the gunship configuration. And, uh, a mm -hmm. long center part might be where the, uh, the hyperdrive is located. It, it's, a, it's one of the few Thai vehicles that has its own hyperdrive. And yeah, I've got a whole backstory for it. It's, uh, it's a, a gunship and the gunship part deals with all these big guns here, guns in the equipment base facing aft, and then these two big shoulder guns here which are fusion cannon, and they can only be fired when the two big fusion engines are working. And it's used for attacking much larger ships. Uh, let's see. Mm -hmm. What else so, do we have? So that's, so that's a little bit of scratch building, a little bit of kit bashing. Um, over here, you may recognize what should be a standard tie interceptor, except the wings are on backwards or, or, or sideways. And that was just me. I was putting together a TIE interceptor, and I just happened to put one of the wings on wrong. And I, it was kind of like when I was putting those two hulls together on, on that other ship, I thought, wait a minute, that looks kind of cool. And so I put the other wings on, and I realized, I think I like that actually better than the original. So I shortened, I shortened the pylons so it doesn't look quite so gangly and come up with a backstory for it. I hope these images are steady enough that you can see. Yes, we can see him very clear. There we go. And, uh, I've got him in formation with uh, Darth Vader's fighter. He's uh, esc escorting the, uh, Vader. That's actually a part of the backstory for it was that after the Battle of Yavin, uh, the Emperor was somewhat pissed off about Vader being so focused on Luke. You know, you know the force is strong with this one. That he forgot to use the force himself to enhance his own situational awareness. And that's how Han and Chewie were able to ambush him by the classic old technique of diving out of the sun. So the emperor says, fine, you need, we're gonna give you a dedicated escort who doesn't engage in battles or anything like that. His purpose is to simply defend you. And so uh, this Mark II TIE interceptor was um, developed by the guy who, uh, who was, uh, and picked by Vader, needed to find a, uh, someone who was an extraordinarily skilled pilot, but had no sensitivity to the force whatsoever. And that was a tough, uh, a tough uh, combination to find. But in my backstory for it, that's him. Now, All right. here's, and here's I see another. the Enterprise back there. Oh yeah, here, let me, uh, let's, let's get over here. Wow. Are those, are those working lights? Yes, they are. This is the uh, Bandai 1850 scale model of the Enterprise. And it's, uh, the, uh, the paint job they did was wonderful, but the interior lighting they gave was horrid. And so I literally threw the entire uh, factory made system away and put in my own system of uh, 21 bright white LEDs all hooked together in parallel. So it's one big fat, happy parallel circuit all together. And um, let's see if I can get a nice stern view. That's cool. Thanks. Wow. This is my favorite iteration. Of course, I think everybody likes this. Of all the different designs of the enterprise, we've been shown um, the, the refit enterprise for the motion picture and Wrath of Khan. Uh, everybody loves it. Mm -hmm. It's the it's the personification. You can almost see the sailing ship, you know, spirit in that design. Just so nice. 
Um, nice. Let's see. Oh, and they have a, a cruiser. Yep. Yeah, we, we were, this is Darth Vader's fighter. This is a 124th scale, or excuse me, a 148th scale. It's half of studio scale. Okay. Uh, over here, this yes. guy looks familiar. This is the old monogram kit that I had to heavily modify and add parts to because it was very, um, very bereft of detail all along the sides, which I had to correct. God, I built this model about 20 something years ago. Now, is this a, is this a Star Wars model? No, this was actually BSG. This is Battlestar Galactica. That's what I thought. Battlestar Galactica. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Wonderful. Okay. And okay. Um, what's interesting yeah. is the, the production designer for uh, Battlestar Galactica was mm -hmm. you know, Ralph, Ralph McQuarrie, who was the same uh, uh, production Star designer Wars. and artist for Star wow. Wars. And uh, the original Colonial Viper, you know, with the three wings from uh, Battlestar Galactica was originally going mm -hmm. to be a Star Wars vehicle. Mm -hmm. But uh, Lucas had thought Incredible. it was too. Yeah, he had. Uh, Lucas had said it was too similar to an X-wing, um, and they needed something, um, you know, another rebel vehicle, but it was sufficiently different so that at a glance you could immediately see it wasn't the same thing. And that's that's mm -hmm. what the Y. That's what became the Y-wing. Uh, let's see. The nice all thing right. about all these sci-fi franchises, Star Wars. Battlestar Galactica, Star Trek, is they're so rich and so deeply mm -hmm. detailed that they invite improvisation and they invite somebody to come in with their own imagination and create stuff. And so here, that's in the middle of the screen right now, is my idea of a Federation battlecruiser. You know, we got Klingon battlecruisers, Romulan battlecruisers, everybody else has battlecruisers except the Federation. Yes. All, all they had was the heavy cruisers. Um, which had a dual mission profile, which was not only military gunboat duty, but they also did, um, you know, uh, patrolling, or not some patrolling, but exploring space, you know, finding new civilizations, um, cultural outreach, which sometimes has a conflict with the mission, a military mission profile. So I decided to, to create a ship that had a purely military mission, and that's this guy. This is the Everhart. Yeah, let's mm -hmm. see if I can get. That's incredible. And then I also see us. Uh, oh, there's a smaller model of the Enterprise. And oh, then yeah. I see that there's a Star Destroyer. Oh, yeah. Hang on. We're, we'll get to the Star. Here, let me try. Something. Yeah, okay. Oh, boy. I'm going to try something just because we're set up here. Okay, hey. let's do this. Oh, wait, where am I? Where's, where's your lens, John? There's the lens. Okay. Yeah. We have to find the lens and make the shot work. Gotcha. Look at that. <laughs> there you have it. That's right. Oh, it's the exact shot from the old. I get it. I get it. Yeah, that's that's awesome. Did that work? Wow. Not, not bad for a little improv. <laughs> that was pretty good. That was pretty good. That's wonderful. Oh, and the reason I brought that little bitty enterprise is because I've yeah. got this here. That's a Russian-made model kit. I've only mocked a few pieces of it together. Uh huh. Hang on, I just lost a. There we go. And the reason I thought we might be interested in it because it's not done yet is it happens to be in very close scale 
to the original Starship Enterprise. Hmm. Can you see that? I do. Wonderful. Wonderful. What was the deciding factor? What made you decide to actually pack up and move to California to do this professionally? Oh, um, remember that space cruiser I was telling you about? The, the one that yes. I was building? Well, okay, let me, let me turn the camera around. There we go. The crew of a submarine, there uh, can be a bunch of surly pirates but uh, they also tend to be fairly bright. And there's a lot of science, uh, science fiction fans among them. And people would ask me about this star cruiser. You know, okay, what does it do? What's it called? What are, what are the people on it like? What's, you know, is it uh, an alien thing or whatever? You know, and so I started coming up with answers to their questions. And as time progressed, the answers started forming a story. They were on a mission. And, as, uh, as this progressed, and of course it got involved with that big battleship, the Temerity, it became a full, fully fledged science fiction story. Well, I had come onto the mess decks one day, I was planning to, uh, uh, to get a cup of coffee and go on, go on watching the torpedo room. Well, around the corner on the mess decks, they couldn't see me, but I could hear six guys at a table having a conversation. They're playing cribbage. And their conversation, being young men, they could be talking about cars, uh, you know, sports, um, old sea stories. They were talking about my story, which I, uh, which became uh, called Race to Olympus, or excuse me, Escape to Olympus. They were talking about it, and I had left it on a cliffhanger just the day before. And they were placing bets with real money, 20 bucks, 25 bucks about what was gonna happen next. And some little light went off in my head and said, you know, people are spending money based on a story of mine and I'm not getting any of that money. <laughs> so I thought, I better go to Hollywood. So I, I decided, you know, I need to make a choice because I was also considering trying to join the SEAL team. And I thought, you know what, I really have a passion for this. I would like to tell stories. I like these sci-fi concepts, these spaceships. I enjoy this stuff. Uh, I better see if I can find a way to make a living at it. And so a few months later, I got out of the Navy. And uh, then I went to Arizona and went to, you know, live with my folks for a few months. Uh, that was not a good idea. Never go back. Once you leave, never go back. Um, yeah, but anyway, um, it, you know, I did about a year of college and then decided I, I was spinning my wheels and I needed to get into Hollywood. So I got there and took a bunch of photos of the uh, models that I'd built and started shopping them around, gradually uh, finding little bits and pieces of work here and there. The first thing I got to work on was a TV show called Max Headroom. Then I worked on a uh, television series based on the 1950s movie, The War of the Worlds. I don't know if you remember that. I, I, I didn't really care for it. It was very low budget, but uh, we did some cityscape work for it, just like I did for Max Headroom. And uh, I had a you know a real job. I was working um, for my employer was Xerox Corporation, but I was working at a law firm that uh, had as one of its senior partners a guy named William Ginsburg, who was Monica Lewinsky's family attorney. So that was all kind of fun. Um, 
and uh, gradually started getting work and more work so that I reached the point where I had to quit my real job because that's the only way to have time to do these Hollywood fun jobs. And that's how that, and that's how that happened. And your first film uh, was, was it Apollo 13? The first film you worked on? Uh, the first movie I worked on was um, Army of Darkness. Okay. Yeah. Yes. We did, we did uh, or, or as we called it, of course, in, in the industry, we love to make fun of the titles of films. Um, Army of Darkness, of course, became Army of Dorkness. Um, hmm. Uh, let's see, uh, uh, Starship Troopers became Space 90210. Uh, mm -hmm. <laughs> so uh, we just had that kind of fun. But one thing we didn't make fun of was Apollo 13. Uh -huh. and, and when I think about it, um, Apollo, the work I did on Apollo 13 was, this may sound a little strange, but it was spiritually satisfying. And here's mm. why. We didn't build the models. Those were being built at a shop called uh, Digital Domain. But what we did at Wonderworks is we built um, a number of full-scale, full-size props, uh, sets. One was the interior of the command module. Another was the exterior of the command module after it had gone through the re-entry. So it had all that scorched exterior with the big balloons and then flotation devices and everything like that. Uh, we built a full-scale um, uh, lunar lander for the scene where Tom Hanks was daydreaming about what it would have been like if they landed on the moon. Um, we built that. And then we built the uh, other lunar lander, which was a half of the lunar lander leaned up against a wall. And that was the lunar lander simulator that they had that Gary Sinise and his team were working on uh, for trying to figure out how to get, you know, how to solve the problem that the astronauts were encountering. So anyway, we, uh, Two things, two really cool things happened. Well, first is very shortly after we finished making the interior of the command module, we got a visit from Dave Scott, who was the mission commander from Apollo 15. And he asked to, uh, if he could go inside our CM interior. And of course, he's, he's, he's royalty to us. Um, he, he commanded an Apollo mission. What are we gonna say? No, you can't go in? <laughs> of course we did. We, we let him in and we left him alone. And he was in there a good 15 minutes. Finally, he stuck his head out of the hatch. He looked at us. He said, guys, I could fly this. He said, there wasn't a thing he could remember about the command module that we hadn't perfectly accurately duplicated, except for one panel up near the, uh, near the hatch. Um, all the switches and everything was in their proper place, but the identification for each switch was wrong, he couldn't recognize it. And I said, oh, that's all of our initials. That's us, that's our artists signing our work. So he really enjoyed that. And then the other wow. thing that was, was totally cool was um, when we were filming the, the recovery scene, the uh, command module that we built the exterior is floating in the water and the actors are coming out of it. The, the Navy divers are there. There's a, uh, an old Navy Sea King helicopter hovering and then there's the camera helicopter and then there's the service barge for the shot. Well, Dave Scott and Fred Hayes and Jim Lovell, who are the two surviving astronauts from Apollo 13 were on that barge. And I was near them, but I, I was working on something else. I could hear their voices. I couldn't see who said what to whom. 
but one of them said, and this is a family program, so I won't say exactly what he said, but he said, something, something, this feels like going back in time. And I thought, man, mm. this was more than wow. just a paycheck. You can tell us exactly what he said when we were off the air. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Turn 11 soon, I can change. Oh, it. my goodness. <laughs> yeah, I will, I will let your imagination uh, go to work on now, and you will probably <laughs> be you. right. <laughs> but, yeah. but, but yeah. Wow, um, that, yeah. You know, the praise does not get better. That's just, that yeah. was from on high. It was, like I said, it was more than just a paycheck. This was something spiritual. We helped tell the story of Apollo 13. Um, and it was an excellent film. In fact, Ron Howard was so impressed with the quality of the sets we made for him that he did something very unusual. Uh, usually in uh, in uh, film production, the opening credits and closing credits are are arranged long before the film is done, certainly before it goes into post-production. Um, and so a lot of guys in post don't get their name in the credits. That's why I worked on 15 pictures and my name is in the credit of two of them. And that's all just because post-production is the redheaded stepchild of the film industry, always has been. Well, now Ron Howard made certain that our names, everybody involved in the Apollo 13 project at Wonderworks got their name wow. in a special thanks section down at the end of the credit roll. So if you want that to find- incredible. Yeah, yes. uh, uh, yeah. Ron was a class act. There's no question yeah. about it. What an incredible story that is! Wow. And Apollo 13 is a great film. Keith has not seen it yet, but no, no, no. Yes, but now that you've mentioned it, um, that is something that we're going to put on the top of our list because that is an absolute. Um, it, it it is an it, it is a a work of art that that film you know with the yeah. acting and the production design and the music uh, that all came together. Uh, telling oh, I, that story I, about yeah something you know that happened in true life you know it was a wonderful wonderful story my um what, what I, I don't really have i i don't know if we if i would maintain the connection if i was to drag this phone down into the uh, basement which is where i my model shop is but i also have my music and movie collection there mm. um uh i don't like the idea of, of relying on a on a uh, cloud service like a you know a movie service or a music service. If if a book is worth reading more than once, if a movie is worth watching more than once, or if a piece of music is worth listening to more than once, then I want my own copy. And um, down there, I've got I've got you know three hundred plus film scores, um, two hundred odd classical music discs, some classic rock, a little of this, a little of that, some yeah. Christmas music, some comedy, uh, some new age. Um, but yeah, big collection. And uh, one of the things yeah. that I like to listen to several times a year is the score from Apollo 13. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Tremendous. James, James Warner. Yeah, yeah. He's, he, he also passed yeah. away much too soon. Yeah, and exactly. He's like, he's like so many guys who, uh, I mean, they're not professional pilots, but they make enough money that they can get themselves a, a really nice airplane and stuff, but they, yeah. they sometimes forget the basis. And I think it caught up with him. If and young fellow, if you ever be, you get a pilot's license, someday you will. Flying is a joy. Make certain that you pre-flight your airplane every time you take it up, even if you just got out of it five minutes before. Am I wrong? So we're talking about you know uh, the people that you've met over the years. Uh, um, 
these icons, I want to talk about another icon. You mentioned that you also worked on a music. Prince. You you also worked on <laughs> yes. You also worked on a music video for Prince. Prince. Yes, Can you tell yes. us about that? You worked on Seven. That's that's right. You have to find Seven, and if you see uh, things that look vaguely reminiscent of the Taj Mahal, there was a structure we called the Taj Mahal, even though it wasn't architecturally the same thing. It had the same flavor. Um, and then there's a cityscape, a stylized, uh, you know, street scene where the kids are dancing in the street, and the street is literally a yellow brick road. The models were, okay, the street was a life-size yellow brick road on the, um, on the floor of the soundstage. And then they were uh, taped off. Everyone, you know, there were two converging parallel, you know, lines. And I, wait a minute, that's, that's a contradiction. They, uh, they converged in, um, in perspective, but they were supposed to be, seem very parallel. And the kids were all told, uh, to stay inside those lines yeah, we had we were shooting all day trying to get this right because these kids are like three and four years old and they're all dancing with uh, uh prince and the young lady's name i think her name is apollonia um but anyway they're doing this dance number and the, what the camera is way up in the sky looking down in between these two models um uh the, the sides of the street and those are very close to the camera. This is called foreground miniature photography, where you're part of your cam part of what your camera is looking at is way in the distance, and the other part of it is real close, and all of it has to be in focus. And so, uh, you, if, if you watch the video, you'll see what I'm talking about. Mm -hmm. And uh, mm -hmm. just just imagine that every once in a while, one of those kids will will run across the line or jump across the line, which means they literally disappear under a building. <laughs> so that, that was kind of fun getting uh, getting that to work. Um, mm -hmm. When you how was it that you were chosen to work on the video? Did you have uh, a connection with the director? And and if it was the director, did this uh, director come forward to explain to you what it was Prince was looking for, or what the video was about? Like, how did you know what they needed out of the well, video from you? Those were conversations I wasn't a part of. I was just one of the hired, you know, sculptors, model builders on on that particular one. But yeah, um, the, the whoever it is producing the video will you know, be just like any other production. They got somebody who's going to try to find uh, a group of people, maybe an effects house or a sculpt uh, sculpting shop that had preferably has done this sort of thing before, so they've got a track record. And one of the uh, advantages we had is that the art the owner of our shop his name was brick price he was also known in the industry not just as a, uh, a model shop owner but as a director of miniatures photography he was one of the best in the industry he was very good at making something three feet long look like it was 300 feet long and, and uh, that kind of perspective knowing how to light it how to uh, how to shoot it what kind of uh, lenses you need everything to get the right perspective and the right scale now, lighting the works he's very good at it so uh with those two things going for us a producer would would find a shop like ours uh they do some preliminary interviews um what kind of th services can we provide uh everything from design to uh final execution mm -hmm. so you have worked in the film industry for over 15 years 
What made you decide you wanted to leave Hollywood? Oh, the fact that I was born too late. Um, like I say, I was, I was 14 when Star Wars came out. So, and that's what kicked off the whole sci-fi special effects movie boom. But then also computers started coming in. And I was watching, uh, we're working on the fifth element. We had a crew of over a hundred people and fifth element was in production. Titanic was in production. Starship Troopers was in production. Uh, Dante's Peak, a whole bunch of other pictures. There was just a lot of work. The Titanic went so far behind schedule. They were literally going out to Venice Beach, finding homeless people and saying, we'll pay you 20 bucks an hour. Here's a bottle of glue. You're a model builder. That's how desperate they were. Turned out to be uh, not a good ploy because you get somebody with so little experience that you have to watch them. You reach a point where you know, you're, you're wasting your own time. But anyway, that's how bad it got. But I was also looking at the, in the trades, you know, the Variety and uh, the Hollywood Reporter and other, um, other papers where upcoming projects would be discussed. And so many of these projects that were in production right now had gone behind, uh, oh, what's it, uh, behind schedule and over budget. Producers were getting to be very leery about touching an effects heavy project. So yes, we were feasting now, but I saw a famine coming around the corner. And that was the fact that uh, uh, more and more work was going digital. And while there were people who uh, you know, disagreed that, that, that digital would never take over and there were some that were afraid it would be wood and it would be terrible for all of us. I was something, I, I took it all in stride. I said, you know, things go out of, uh, go out of fashion, things go out of date. Uh, nobody makes buggy whips anymore because there are no more buggies anymore. We all have cars. And so things change. And I decided that I didn't want to go in the direction of the digital um, revolution because I saw everybody else doing that. And I was watching the, the, the wage for uh, digital guys go from like $85 an hour to $55 an hour to $40 an hour. And I was, and I was watching that with one eye. Well, on the other eye, I was watching all my colleagues in the, in the uh, optical effects you know, signing up for courses to go digital, learning, learning the technology and learning how to do that. And I thought, this is a lemming race. I don't need to join. So I ended up going into um, toy prototyping for about a year. And that was when my, my uh, first wife left and took our daughter with her. And I had mixed feelings about that because I was certainly glad to get my daughter out of the Los Angeles area, no place to raise a kid. And it's gotten worse. Um, so, so uh, yeah. So anyway, that's how that happened. Uh, yeah, understood. Um, I don't know if you've seen it, but there is a documentary on um, Disney Plus regarding ILM, and I'm sure you're familiar. Yes, I'm sure you're familiar with them. And you're right. I've heard there are stories of visual effects designers, model makers, and matte painters who said the same thing that you said that at some point, you know, their job was starting to become obsolete because it was being taken over by computers and digital technology. So, I mean, so, once computer generated image, computer generated imagery became a thing, there's really no need to have people meticulously making scale models yeah. or not true scale models for that. Yeah. In, in that case, because by then you could have had a full scale model digitally and then just added in backdrops like what they 
like they did for Stranger Things because yeah. Finn Wolfhard couldn't ride the bike. So they just had a green screen person. They had a person in a green suit riding the bike and then photoshopped his face on. See, yeah. you couldn't do that. You couldn't yeah. do that back in like the 80s or anything, but you can yeah. do that now with CGI. Yeah. Yeah. And oh, it I- kind of took over the film industry. Yeah. Oh yeah, I have, and I have no objection to it because I, I see some of the quality of the work coming out, and it took a while for for people to get their stride, because you still have to be not just a technician; you need to be an artist. You need to have a sense of scale and a sense of lighting, and so on and so forth, and proportion. But I've, I've, so much of the work that's coming out of uh, computers now is is extraordinary, and in a way, from a producer's standpoint. Yeah, it's still expensive because rendering time is still time and time is money. But the the capacity for the technology has gone far beyond anything we could do in the optical world. So I, I don't have any hard feelings about it. Uh, it's just I was not interested in in uh, becoming a, uh, a pixel pusher after doing this kind of physical you know, optical model work. I, uh, I'm still entranced by that. And there's something else for what it's worth. Uh, I had this conversation with my former employer, Mr. Bigelow, a, uh, the billionaire owner of Bigelow Aerospace. I said, yeah, if you're trying to sell an airplane, you, what do you do with your client? You take them out to the airfield, you go out to the apron, you look at the airplane, you kick the tire, you do a pre-flight, and you maybe even you know, go up in the air, all kinds of things. But when you can't do that because the thing you're trying to sell your client doesn't exist yet, then you have to do something else. And I said, but so you've shown him the PowerPoint presentations, you've seen the, he's got the brochures, he's seen all the, 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 the artist concepts, and it's all two-dimensional and it's all very abstract. And it all sits, all this information sits in one hemisphere of the brain. I said, but there's something a model can do. I said, if you treat a model not as a glorified toy, but you treat it as a form of communication. Now all of a sudden you've got this model that has his company or his country's flag on it or his company logo, and it's exquisitely detailed. I mean, just like any, any other movie model. Then all of that information that was from the PowerPoint presentations and the sales brochures goes to the other side of his brain, the intuitive side. And it makes him feel a hell of a lot better about signing that first $50 million check. And Mr. Bigelow looks at me and he says, you're right. I've, I've got an idea. And so he took the model concept that we were building just to make models for his, the history of his company. And we started using models as sales presentations so that when he had one uh, client out in, um, out in Houston, that uh, they were looking at investing heavily. And this was before the, you know, the first market crash and everything like that, those things happened. We built one of, their, one of those models and had it suspended from the ceiling in his lobby so that every time he walked in and walked past, he was reminded by this three-dimensional thing, physical thing that was in his space and two feet in front of his face, it reminded him of what he was doing. And as it turns out, they still want to uh, want to in, to purchase, but they had to put things on hold for a while. In the meantime, our first client ended up being NASA. Uh, we put one of our inflatable modules on the uh, on the ISS. But here, let me show you something. Now that we're sure, we're, let me reverse again. 
Let me reverse again. There we go. This is a model of the, the Genesis spacecraft that I helped build. I even designed a couple of interior components and then wow. I built this model. And this is a 130th scale. And in case you're wondering how big the thing is, uh, the two of them are still in orbit now. This is, imagine me, I'm five foot 10. And at five foot 10, if I was in a NASA uh, Apollo era pressure suit, yeah. and that's how big, that's how big the Genesis um, orbiting spacecraft are. So wow. this is an example of me building from uh, both a kit and scratch because I scratch built the entire thing with all of its components, the, you know, the, yeah. that bit at the end, the solar panels, yeah. uh, this inflatable section here, all of that I built from scratch. And then I built, um, uh, our, I took silicone rubber models or mold, silicone rubber to make molds. Yeah. Yeah, got, got ahead of myself there. And so mm -hmm. this that you're actually seeing on the camera is an assembled kit that I uh, was able to make. Mm. Oh my is, God, me, that is amazing. Let me just say, John, so, um, you know, to our listeners, you know, who are- Give us an out, go to our YouTube channel and subscribe. <laughs> well, thank you, Keith. <laughs> yeah, right I mean, this is something that. you really actually need to see uh, so, you know, we, we, you know, implore you to just go and take a look at this video. Um, if you want to still listen to it, fine. But I think you, 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 you would get a, a better understanding of what you're seeing and how it's being explained. If you go to our YouTube channel and look at this episode, this is incredible. And by the way, are you subscribed? <laughs> okay. as, a, as a matter of fact, I am subscribed, but because I'm <laughs> such a tech, I'm so tech illiterate. I haven't gone yeah. to the, um, to the YouTube channel, but I will because now I'm kind of curious to see how this stuff looks. I've been wanting to go and just kind of listen to other what you guys have been done before. Um, sure. I figured, and I keep putting it off. I don't mean to, but maybe I got to stop putting it off now. But <laughs> no I, pressure, John. John. No pressure. No, no pressure at all. Okay. Well, I, th I think I'm so, going to enjoy it. I'm also going to tell a couple of my friends. I uh, recently uh, got back in touch with somebody I knew in high school who is wow. also in. Uh, into Star Wars. He's in the uh, 501st Legion uh, out in Mesa, Arizona. And I'm going to tell him about y'all's uh, uh, podcast here and say, yeah, they got a, they, these guys got a Star Wars thing going on here. And they got, you know, you've got a, some history, you've interviewed some people, not just me, but I mean, you have some, some, you know, people with some, some, uh, some real uh, uh, credentials uh, in Star Wars. And so, uh, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm going to guide people to your door. Everywhere. Yes. Yeah. How yes, awesome is that? Wow. Yeah. 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 Five, five oh first are very important in the Star Wars community. John, we do have one last question that we want to ask. Keith is going to ask. So it. have you taught model making to others? Because you're so great at it. Maybe you should teach like a master class. You know, I've thought about that doing a video, perhaps um, uh, model model building for dummies. I mean, because they've got everything else in the world in that four dummies series. Why not? Um, Absolutely. That, that, that's, that's actually uh, a very good question. And yes, I do like teaching. Um, that, you know, it's kind of funny. When I was on, working on the fifth element, I was you know, one of the senior guys on a crew of over 100. 
And it was one of the other guys who told me, he said, you know, don't be so quick with our secrets here, man. You know, because he was afraid, like I said, the computers were taking over the industry. He was just paranoid about everything. And I said, are you kidding? And I said, look, at there was this one young lady. Oh, my God. She was from uh, Thailand. Um, she was, by background, a sculptor. But this was her first model building job. And when all of us were told to make a bunch of uh, rooftop fixtures for the fifth element. Here, let me, let me uh, turn the camera around now. Mm -hmm. Yeah. There we go. This young lady, her name was Kataya. She put together the most incredible piece of artwork that also looked very technical. We had a, uh, one, of our, one of our tools was a laser cutter and laser cutter would, would cut whether cardboard, wood, metal, or uh, a plastic, you know, a sheet. And then it would, you tell it to cut a certain pattern, it would cut that stuff out. Well, a lot of times when the stuff that's left over, simply called drop, is uh, potentially useful itself. So we kept a lot of that stuff. Well, Kataya went through that and she made this like four foot tall um, microwave relay antenna looking sci-fi thing that was, it was a work of art, but also had uh, a lot of technical look to it. And it was easily the best thing any of us had done. And I remember teaching her things about, you know, techniques, techniques of molding and stuff like that. And I thought, and, you know, she was also teaching me something. And um, she taught me when, um, for molding, if, you, if you've got a silicone rubber mold, one of the things that helps um, the resin get into all the details, all the nooks and crannies, so you don't have a lot of air bubbles and things like that, was to uh, coat the interior of it with baby powder because the texture of the baby powder breaks up the surface tension of the resin and it just makes it capillary into everything. Well, this person with six months experience was talking to somebody with you know, years of experience and teaching me. So it's like, someone can teach me, I can teach others and it's all good. Mm -hmm. so, so that's, so I, I enjoy it. And again, the approach I take, the thing that, I find worthwhile in model making is the idea that even if it is only a glorified toy, even if it is your X-Wing or your, your 69 Ford Mustang sitting on your shelf, if you think of it as a glorified toy, that's all it will be. But if you care about the subject matter and you bring your knowledge and your passion with you into the project, you will turn that model into a message. It's literally a form of communication. Wow. John, thank you so much for sharing your incredible story. Yeah. Thanks for listening. Yeah. Hey, my brain just turned into go. Keith is processing all of this. This is a buffering. Such a truly inspirational story as well. And such a pleasure to speak with you. Is there a way that people can uh, keep in, uh, know more about what you're doing and your future projects? Do you have a website or are you on any of the socials? You know, um, as of now, no, but okay. you've got just, just the fact that we've had this conversation and that we've done this has got me thinking that I should open up to those concepts. And so uh, maybe, uh, maybe, maybe we can talk some more on it uh, and, and do a couple other things. I, if you don't mind my thinking, maybe I should uh, ask you some questions on it because I expect you guys to know a heck of a lot more than I do. Absolutely not a problem. Thank you so much once again. This is John LaValle. Uh, he is a, a model maker. Uh, he is part of our Star Wars community. This is why 
this segment, these segments when we're uh, spotlighting our fans is very important. You know, these are the unsung heroes um, that we love to share these stories with. Well, you. now they're sung. Yes. <laughs> so, so thank you so much once again, John. No problem. You guys take All care. Right. Where can people find us, Keith? Thank you. Yeah. Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Radio Public, Amazon Music, Audible, Good Pods, or wherever you get your podcasts. Yes. We've been recently featured on both Apple Podcasts and Good Pods, so check those out. Our socials are Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Fathersend Galaxy. Our website is fathersendgalaxy.com. Please donate to our Patreon page so we can keep making awesome content like this. And check out our speaker page as well. Plus, we're having a... <laughs> We now have merch. a shop, right? Merchandise shop. We have yes. a merch shop. Yes. We're wearing our own merch today. Yeah. So please check it out. Check out our store. And until next time, take care. And, and we will see, see you again. again.